0: Welcome to the Conservation Today Show. I am your host, Francis Etherington. Today I am going to play for you a presentation that was given yesterday. That is, it was given on March 19th. It is uh, concerning the Jordan Cove Project. This presentation was sponsored by the Great Old Broads for Wilderness. It was slated to be given live in Portland, but because of, well, you know what, COVID-19, it was a webcast instead. While there were slides being shown during the speaker's presentation, I think the radio audience will still be able to fully understand this presentation without those slides. Now, as most of my audience knows, the Jordan Cove Project is a project that is proposed by a foreign corporation from Canada wanting to ship mostly foreign gas from Canada, ship it to another foreign country, Asia, and they need to use Oregon as their stepping stone to get there. We've been waiting to see if the Trump administration will allow this foreign corporation to take, with eminent domain, property from US citizens so this foreign corporation can make their foreign profits. Yesterday morning, just hours before we presented, the Trump administration made a final decision to approve this project and to approve their right For eminent domain. Now the speakers will talk about what that means. It'll talk about uh, what it means for the uh, uh, environmental impacts and Pamela Brown Orway will talk about what it means as an impacted landowner threatened with eminent domain on her family farm near Camas Valley, Oregon. There are three other speakers and you will hear them introduced next. Here we go. So hello and welcome.
1: My name is Jane Heisler and I'm a member of the Cascade Volcanoes Broadband for the Great Old Broads for Wilderness. We are a grassroots conservation group that has 40 chapters nationwide with thousands of women and men who want to advocate for public lands and join in education and stewardship projects to promote the protection of and additions to public lands. We're excited today to be able to offer this webinar. Although we had hoped to see you all in person, this method will allow us to record the event and then share it with others who can't be on the computer tonight. So that said, this is a new approach for us. So bear in mind that we're, we're learning as we go. Felice Kelly on our leadership team, who was just speaking and her friend Kat will be managing the call and questions at the end. So we hope that you will learn more about or something about the Jordan Cove uh, project and the pipeline which would cut through much of Southern Oregon and the LNG terminal, which would be located on the beautiful Oregon coast. Or if you already know something about Jordan Cove, that you are able to learn about some additional aspects of it. New as of today, of course, is the FERC, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, has approved the frac gas facility and pipeline. So we'll talk a little bit about what that means for our state and why for the sake of our rivers, forests, oceans, health and climate change, we should continue to say no to this project. Felice, did you wanna talk a little bit about COVID?
2: Oh uh, yeah, I just wanted to take a quick moment before we started. Um, I think for everyone on this call, it's been a really tough week. And just before we begin, I'd like to take a moment for us to send healing and peace to all those affected by the COVID-19 pandemic around the world.
1: Thank you. We've got four speakers. Uh, Frances is our first one. And uh, Frances is an activist and property (laughs) owner. Uh, She's a member of the Rogue Broadband in Southern Oregon. And the former conservation director with Cascade Wildlands. So Francis, take it away.
0: Okay, well thank you for that and happy equinox to everybody. Today's thank the day. You. I live in Southern Oregon. I'm, I'm here outside of Roseburg talking to you today on this new medium and I am a board member of Oregon Women's Land Trust that owns some land near Dace Creek. In 2006 we received a letter that the pipeline would like to come through our property, please. So we've been in this fight for a long time. Now, I'd like to start out uh, by giving you some uh, terminology that we're gonna be using today in this presentation. Uh, The Jordan Cove Energy Project has two parts. It has the export terminal proposed for Coos Bay and the Pacific Connector Gas Pipeline across Southern Oregon. We will be talking about FERC the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission so everyone you're going to hear us say FERC FERC that is the U.S. federal agency in charge of the environmental analysis for this project and the granting or not of the right of eminent domain to seize private property for this project. They issued a final environmental impact statement in November of 2019. And as Jane said just this morning, they, they issued a final decision conditionally approving the jordan cove project and those conditions involve uh, procuring the permission from the state of oregon i'm sure damon will talk more about that in detail later on in this presentation but the FERC decision this morning could also mean threats of court proceedings to condemn private properties and that will also be discussed by pam later on in this presentation right now next i'd like to give you a little history of this project. Now this project was originally proposed in 2004 to import natural gas to California and it used about the same pipeline path that we see today. The import project was conditionally approved by FERC in 2009. Conditionally approved similar to today's decision but right after that decision fracking took off and suddenly the americas were suddenly awash in natural gas so uh, they never acted on that 2009 approval it was abandoned and in 2012 it was replaced with a request to export liquefied natural gas to asia after Three years of an environmental analysis. In the March of 2016, FERC surprised everyone with a denial of this export terminal. Now, FERC was known as the rubber stamp organization, so we were all shocked when they deny it, but they determined it was not in the public interest, especially since Jordan Cove had no contracts to sell the gas. Uh, Jordan Cove appealed, and FERC again denied that appeal in December of 2016. One month later, Trump was inaugurated, and a few days later, uh, Jordan Cove refiled to start over again. And now we are in the final stages of that third try. Uh, Verizon had owned the project up until 2017 and when Pembina also from Alberta, Canada, bought out Verizon and so inherited this project. Uh, a few more details about the project. The terminal, as you all know, is terminal would be located near the city of Coos Bay in the Bay of Coos Bay. Uh, the ga- there, the gas would be super cooled uh, to liquefy it. If you make it really cold, it liquefies it and that compresses it. Uh, so, it's known as liquefied natural gas or LNG, and it's compressed so they can put more on ocean tankers. The terminal would be built on unstable sand dunes in a tsunami subduction earthquake zone in an area of high winds and ship disasters and directly in the path of the regional airport runway here you can kind of see the runway of the airport the runway kind of faces right here where there will be two storage tanks huge storage tanks holding lng 42 million gallons each now it requires electricity to keep that liquefied natural gas liquefied and if it loses the electricity, it will start to regasify and expand, which would be catastrophic, which is why, of course, the earthquake tsunami issue we feel is a big problem. In 2018, a study was done that found that the terminal would be the largest source of climate pollution in the state of Oregon. The terminal would emit the annual equivalent Of emissions from 8 million vehicles. So that is what we would be adding to Oregon's greenhouse gas budget. And a word about these ocean tankers uh, come to this terminal uh, is expected that 120 of these huge ocean tankers would come. That would be 240 trips across the ocean and whale migration routes. These are the largest vessels in the world they would be over three football fields long, 950 feet long, 150 feet wide. So it means massive dredging needs to be done in the Bay of Coos Bay here in order to fit these huge ocean tankers. And it will be difficult for any other users of the Bay to exist there as all all fishing and recreation boats and airplanes will be restricted while one of these massive ships has to come seven miles up this access channel right here. Here's a few words about the pipeline. Uh, 230 miles long from Malin, Oregon right here near Klamath Falls, uh, 230 miles to Coos Bay. Uh, It would be a three-foot diameter pipe needing a 95-foot wide clear-cut right-of-way plus a lot of that right-of-way has to be 150 feet wide because there's many places they need extra work areas. The pipe would be buried anywhere from 18 inches to 36 inches deep. Now it starts in Malin, Oregon because in Malin there's some existing pipelines coming from Canada to bring Canadian gas there. This is the GTN pipeline, there's also the Ruby pipeline here. Two-thirds of it is on private land, one-third on public lands, that's 80 miles on public lands. And here you can see where it goes through the, uh, the Wainema National Forest, the Rogue River National Forest, Medford BLM. This is the Umpqua National Forest, uh, Roseburg BLM, crosses Interstate 5 near Myrtle Creek, Coos Bay BLM, and on to Coos Bay. This pipeline would be, would carry high pressure, unodorized fracked natural gas. It would require almost 2000 acres of Southern Oregon forest to be clear cut. It would cross 485 more or less waterways in Southern Oregon. Many of those fish bearing streams, you know, it crosses major rivers like the Klamath, the Rogue, the Umpqua twice, it crosses the Umqua, the Coquille and the Coos Rivers, and, uh, and there is a lot of private land and over 90 private landowners have refused to grant access for this Canadian project. Now the pipeline itself has some safety issues. The pipeline goes through classes of safety regulations, class one through class four. And class four is for areas of high population like the city of Coos Bay. Uh, Class one is in rural areas and rural is defined as less than 10 families along one mile of that pipeline. Class one has the lowest safety standards allowed. Class 4 the highest. So 70% of the pipeline is in a Class 1 area, where Pembina is allowed to save a lot of money by cutting safety corners, especially by using thinner pipes. Uh, They can also uh, bury the pipes higher, have less welds, less inspections, and a host of other cost-saving reduced safety measures. Why? Your guess is as good as mine. Maybe if it blows up, only a few of us will die, not very many. Uh, And most of the forests it goes through are class one, reduced safety areas. Um, Southern Oregon, as many of you know, have what is known as fire-adapted forests, where our forests burn naturally, and they burn often. Pembina says, Don't worry about forest fires because the soil will insulate the pipe from heat. However, professionals disagree with that assessment. The Corps of Engineers, for instance, points to the numerous piles of logging slash that will be left to deter off-highway vehicles recreating there. And so if one of those slash piles were to catch fire, or if the burning tree falls onto the right of way, the core believes it would compromise the integrity of the pipe. And then there's the block valves. Here's a picture of a typical block valve. There are 18 of these block valves spaced along the pipeline route where the pipe comes above ground. And that has valves that can shut off different sections of the pipe. So. You know, who's going to drive through a burning forest to turn off that valve? These are not automatic shutoff valves. In 2015, the Stouts Creek Fire, east of Canyonville, burned over 17 miles of the proposed pipeline route, including the site of one of these block valves. And that fire was fought with heavy equipment on ridgetops, the same place the pipe would be buried. What could go wrong? Now, a little bit more information on the federal forest impacts. Um, this pipeline will go through four national forests and three BLM districts. The 80 miles of pipeline through public forest will cause over 1,300 acres of clear cuts. And of those forests, 65% had been set aside for wildlife habitat like spotted owls, marbled murrelets, and coho salmon. 750 acres to be clear-cut are old growth forests. The pipeline would would also violate restrictions on things like how much soil is disturbed or visual retention requirements like, um, for instance, clear-cutting across the Pacific Crest Trail is usually not allowed. Now, to compensate for this harm, uh, mitigations are proposed on the national forest lands. For instance, to compensate for clear-cutting wildlife reserves, it's called late succession reserves, like the one seen in this picture, mitigation would designate replacement wildlife reserves. But mitigations are only on forest service lands. On BLM lands, there was no timely mitigation offered. Logging on BLM lands would occur on over 47 miles on BLM lands. On BLM lands, they would clear cut over 700 acres. And this would hit marbled merlettes especially hard because of that edge effect. It's not just the acres that's clear cut, it's all the edge effect that goes on into the forest. But not one BLM mitigation project not one, was analyzed in the EIS. And this is because in July of 2018, the Trump administration prohibited the BLM from asking for any mitigation for any damages to BLM lands. Isn't that a crazy thing to do? But that's what they did. So instead of mitigating these otherwise illegal practices, the BLM will just change their forest plans to make clear-cutting in wildlife and streamside reserves legal. The BLM will reallocate all lands within the pipeline right-of-way to a district reserve to be managed only for the purposes of the Pacific Connector Pipeline. 885 acres would go into this new BLM reserve. It's kind of hard to believe that a foreign-owned fossil fuel corporation will be given their own reserve on our BLM lands with virtually no mitigation cost of Pembina at all. Now, the great old broad submitted a protest of this BLM decision, and we can thank our coalition lawyers for bringing these issues to court when, if BLM doesn't change their mind. I'd also like to talk about another significant issue, more about the endangered species. This project is so broad that it touches 35 rare species protected under the Endangered Species Act. And almost half of those, 15 species, are expected to be hit hard enough to harm or kill some of them. That's called a likely to adversely affect. Now note that three of these species, the blue, the fin, and the humback whales, are expected to be harmed. Whale impacts are due to noise and to potential ship strikes with the extra 240 trips of these huge ships across their migration routes. Unfortunately, the National Marines Fisheries Service recently gave an incidental take permit oh, Some people call it an incidental kill permit, allowing Jordan Cove to harm or kill as many whales as they need to get 240 ships back and forth across that ocean. The National Marines Fisheries Service did not specify an upper limit of whales they could kill, just whatever they happened to take with 240 trips a year. And the US Fish and Wildlife Service also recently gave pembina permission to harm or kill whatever terrestrial endangered species they needed to take to build the canadian pipeline you know like owls and merlettes i also want to say a word about our tribes here you know the tribes have been a strong partner in fighting this pipeline at least five tribes are opposed to this project where the pipeline Uh, would impact their watersheds and, and ancestral lands. Now for instance the Klamath tribe wrote to FERC. They said the route of the pipeline goes through areas where villages once existed and it may unearth human remains since graves with human remains have been found in the area. The route would also go under the Klamath River and the Rogue River, which since time immemorial have been and continue to be important sources of fish for tribal members. In conclusion, I want to end by saying that though FERC approved this project this morning, we believe we can stop it. The state of Oregon, for instance, has been diligent in making sure that the state permits meet legal muster we can thank the lawyers on our team from craig and sierra club and the western environmental law center and independent lawyers like tonya morrow for giving us their free time for this project and we have the public support on our side polling shows that only four percent of oregonians say they strongly support this project just four percent thank you This is Conservation Today and we have been listening to a presentation that was given on March 19th, sponsored by the Great Old Broads for Wilderness, about the Jordan Cove project. Uh, We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. We're back from our break. This is Conservation Today. I am your host Francis Etherington and we will continue to listen to a recording of the presentation sponsored by Great Old Broads for Wilderness that was given yesterday on the subject of the Jordan Cove Energy Project. The next speaker will be introduced as an, uh, one of our impacted landowners at Lizner Camas Valley, Oregon.
1: So our next speaker is Pam Ordway and she is a property owner along the pipeline route. And Pam is a lifelong Oregonian with deep roots in Southern Oregon. She grew up with five brothers and sisters on a farm in Camas Valley. And if you don't have your map handy, that's about 30 miles southwest of Roseburg. I had to look it up. Uh, Both Pam and her siblings still are associated with the farm, Uh, Her brother and his wife are living in the original farmhouse and Pam and her other four siblings manage the back half of the property. They've been actively opposing the project since its inception more than a decade ago. Pam is a member of the Landowners Advisory Committee, a group of directly impacted landowners opposed to the pipeline and the project. She's also a board member of Greater Good Oregon, a nonprofit organized to help educate, excuse me, and support impacted property owners fighting against the use of eminent domain by a foreign corporation to seize private land for corporate gain. So we've invited Pam to talk about her experience and how she and her neighbors are being impacted by this. Go ahead, Pam. Thanks. Um, So the highly
3: pressurized pipeline that's supposed to carry fracked gas to the Jordan Cove Energy Facility would cross the family farm I grew up on. It's in Camas Valley. Um, It's a town of about 500 or so. As you said, it's about 30 miles southwest of Roseburg. It's up in the Coast Range. And the route of the pipeline would cut a diagonal path across our property. And what that would mean for us is that the pipeline would pretty much impact every part of our land. The easement itself would initially be roughly 100 feet for construction purposes, and then would end up being a 90-foot-wide permanent easement. The process, in a nutshell, goes like this. Construction workers come in, they clear the land of all the trees, dig a trench that's a little less than 10 feet deep, start laying pipeline, and then cover up the pipeline and exit returning only to spray herbicides on the easement to help vegetation growth down. I suppose they'd occasionally come and inspect it, but I'm not really sure how often. What I do know is that this would leave a permanent scar on the land. On our property, the pipeline would cross the Coco River and two other creeks so that we aren't only talking about ripping up farm and forest land, we're also talking about ripping up trees that shade waterways, damaging fish habitat, and diverting rivers and streams Possibly permanently altering their course. In addition to the damage to the land, the pipeline will dramatically limit how we use our land in the future. About half of our land is farm and pasture land, and half's timberland. We've kept herbicides off our land for the past decade. That would change. We've tried drilling a well, and it's pretty common to have to drill several times before you get a well that produces any water. Um, having the pipeline cross our land is going to limit our option, options on where we can drill. If we wanna put in fencing for livestock or construct outbuildings, having the pipeline running diagonally through the property will restrict us as well. It's also gonna limit what crops we can plant. Things that grow particularly well, like Christmas trees, timber, grapes, and fruit trees won't be allowed in the easement. Any place we wanna cross the pipeline with heavy farm equipment, we need to build up a berm so that the weight doesn't compress the pipeline. This land has been in our family since 1917 after my father passed away in 2003 one of my brothers kept the farm and 100 acres and the other five of us share the remaining 153 acres of farm and forest land. We care deeply for this land. It's a part of who we are. It's a glue that keeps us connected to each other and our past and it's where we're putting our hopes for the future. Our father is buried nearby, as are his parents and his parents' parents. When our father passed away, we knew we'd face challenges keeping the land and the family. We all had our own families and jobs elsewhere. Only one of us lived in the area. The easiest thing to do would have been to sell out to a timber company and walk away with the cash. We all knew that. But when it came down to the actual thought of selling the land and letting go, we just couldn't do it. We knew it wasn't going to be easy. We knew there was a potential for disagreements on how the land should be managed or what would be the best way to move forward. And those were all challenges we felt able to face head on. What we could not anticipate, however, was having to fight off the threat of condemnation by a gas pipeline company. It was back in 2007 when the first permits were from, applied for, and it's been an ongoing battle ever since. And the process goes like this. You get a letter from FERC telling you that a company has applied for a permit to build a pipeline across your land. If you want to participate in the process, you need to become an intervener. And I'll say the process to become an intervener is uh, not easy. They don't make it easy. They don't make it easy to understand. You get a notice from the pipeline company saying they want access to your land to survey. And based on our experience, whether or not you agree to having your property surveyed, Colored flags start showing up, tacked to trees or tied onto bushes. And then you get a letter from the pipeline saying they want to buy an easement. And next comes the land agents. They mail. They call. They send registered letters. And finally, they show up on your doorstep again and again and again. I live in Portland, and they kept coming to the door when I wasn't home, forcefully ringing the doorbell. My daughter was in high school at the time, and the persistence and frequency was beginning to rattle her, so I finally told them, come when I'm home. So they did, and I cracked the front door open and let them tell their story while they stood on my front steps. But imagine if you're elderly and you live alone, far from your nearest neighbor. The constant pestering is at best unsettling, and at worst, scary and intimidating. And then... You get a bunch of unsolicited letters from out of state eminent domain attorneys or others who can facilitate the process to get you the best deal. Or you get a letter from someone who tells You that they know just how to keep you from having to pay capital gains tax on the settlement from the pipeline company. And the tone of these letters is all the same. Someone will be building a pipeline across your land, whether or not you want it. When permits were first applied for, we didn't register interveners. We didn't know if we could or should or even how to do it if we'd wanted to. The communication from FERC was pretty intimidating and gave the impression that the pipeline was a foregone conclusion. It was as if there was a runaway train barreling down on us and our only decision was when to jump to get out of the way. We've learned a lot since then, and frankly, it hasn't been from FERC or elected officials, particularly local elected officials. It's been from other landowners, and in recent years, local environmental groups. And one of the most important things we've learned is this, we are outmatched at every level. It's as if we are suited up for flag football and we've gotten tossed into the NFL playoffs. Nobody tells you what you're supposed to be doing to protect yourself or what your rights are. As landowners opposed to the pipeline, we don't have an endless supply of attorneys lined up to help us navigate the system. We don't have funds to produce reports, holding the facts in just the right light so they validate our view. Nor do we have funds to hire lobbyists so they can hobnob with Congress members to share how our lives are and will be impacted by this. I'd tell you, it's no accident participating in the process is hard for landowners. 95% of the landowners along the route are 55 or older. 75% are 65 and older. Many of them do not have computers. Internet access along much of the route of the pipeline is spotty or non-existent. Many counties and small towns no longer have libraries, and if they do, they're miles away from landowners and often staffed by volunteers with limited hours. For anyone trying to file objections or even just stay up to date on the process, it's a real challenge. On one of my first trips to visit my neighbor just before we attended a local planning commission meeting, she was sitting at her kitchen table, typing a letter voicing her objection, typing a letter on a typewriter, because that was the only method available to her. For the typical landowner, this process is overwhelming and it's scary to realize that you're ill prepared to do battle with the Leviathan heading your way. Unless you're familiar with legal terminology, the documents sent to you look like they're written in a foreign language. What's an intervener? Who's Luba? Why do I have to tell the Army Corps of Engineers about the rivers on my property? You quickly realize that carefully thought out arguments against the project don't count because they aren't framed as legal objections, or they're brought up at the wrong venue or you miss the deadline. Your story of generations on a land or how it's going to threaten your drinking water Or income, or just waved away with a flick of a wrist. And I'll be honest, I'm pretty sure all of us at some time during this have said maybe we should just give up, throw on the towel, take the money, and run. We're trying to live our lives, take care of our families and our land, plan for the future. But we can't give up. I tell people even if I wanted to quit fighting, I don't think I could. There's too much at stake. And as we all know now, that fight just became very real and very immediate. We've been fighting this fight for so many years, over a decade, that I think we all kind of just thought of that as some project was somewhere out in the ether, something like a dark storm cloud looming on the horizon. But with today's news, it just became a violent storm raining down hard on us. We don't know exactly what the immediate future holds. I know there are some legal challenges that'll be filed immediately by some environmental groups and others, but as they work their way through the court, we're still going to be fighting the wolf at our door. We've been told previously that what will likely happen is Pempama will file condemnation lawsuits against us in the court right away. We don't know if they'll file against each, each of us individually or just lump us all together and file one big lawsuit. They could also file quick take. And what that means is that they go to court and ask the court to begin pre-construction activities on our property as we fight back, and the other court battles wage on elsewhere. If quick take is granted, they get to be in work even before we come to an agreed upon price or receive any compensation for the easement. I will tell you, as a landowner, this is terrifying. I know that pushing back and not coming to terms on an easement might mean that I have protected my land if this project is stopped through the courts elsewhere, but it also means that I am having to spend an unknown amount of money for a very uncertain outcome. As part of the Greater Good Board, we've called and spoken with many eminent domain attorneys and a lot of them have told us almost immediately they can't help because at one time or another they worked with Pembina or others who support the project. Those who have said they have no conflict of interest and are willing to help usually start with rates around $500 an hour. If you engage an attorney, then the landowner needs to set aside costs not only for attorneys, but for appraisers and experts to testify on your behalf in court. We've heard prices from five dollars to $10,000, depending on what your unique circumstances are. As you can imagine, for a lot of landowners, their property is pretty much their most important, if not their only, asset. Trying to come up with that type of money to defend their land's a real challenge, and many won't be able to do it. We've encouraged all landowners to at least consult an eminent domain attorney so they know their rights. Greater Good Oregon is trying to raise money to help support those landowners who've joined the Pacific Connector Eastman Action Team, which is a group of landowners who have signed who have not signed Eastman and are committed to continuing the fight. Greater Goods mission is to support them by keeping them connected to each other, keeping them up to date with what's going on, and hopefully to help them reduce the cost of going forward with this fight. At our last count, we had about 30 Pcap members and after today we expect that number might grow. As there are still roughly 90 landowners who have not signed easements if you'd like to help support the landowners on the front lines by donating to greater good there's a link that will take you to our lands and our lives webpage and on that webpage you can see some of the stories of the landowners and there's a spot where you can contribute if you're so inclined this past decade or so has been hell with the uncertainty and grain on our time and resources but I want to also acknowledge that through this ongoing battle, I've had the privilege of meeting so many wonderful people whose paths I otherwise would not have crossed. And for that, I'm grateful. I know today's news was a huge blow. I still literally feel it in my gut. But I know the battle isn't over. And I know that this project is being opposed by a very diverse group of people. And that gives me the strength to continue the fight and I hope that, in the end, we'll win. Thanks.
1: Thank you so much, Pam, for that heartfelt um, story about your and your neighbor's experience going through this and fighting the uh, the Goliath. And I'd like to introduce now Damon Mott's story. Um, Damon is the Healthy Climate Director with Physicians for Social Responsibility, who will discuss the impacts on our health of methane, gas, and climate change. Uh, Mr. Story is now advocating for action on the public health crisis of climate change.
0: We have been listening to a presentation given on March 19th, sponsored by the Great Old Broads for Wilderness. Uh, The presentation is on the Jordan Cove project. It was slated to be given in Portland, but due to, you know what, it was a webcast instead. So now uh, we get to hear it here on Conservation Today. We're going to take a break and we'll be right back. We're back with Conservation Today. We are listening to a presentation about the Jordan Cove Energy Project from yesterday on March 19th. And we are about ready to hear from the speaker, Damon Story, from the Oregon Physicians for Social Responsibility.
4: Thank you so much. Can you hear me okay? Yes. Wonderful. It is such a privilege and a pleasure to be on this panel webinar with you all this evening. And I just want to say how glad I am that we have been able to, I feel like it's actually a real symbolic thing that we are able to so resiliently and flexibly uh, transition to a format that works given the circumstances. I think that's a microcosm of how the coalition and the movement to stop the Jordan Cove LNG project really has been, you know, unbelievable circumstances, like really David and Goliath-esque circumstances, and yet we just keep on triumphing in in so many different ways, um, despite the uh, unbelievable odds. Um, So I'm really excited to talk with you all about some of the work that Oregon Physicians for Social Responsibility has done to look at the health and safety impacts of this project, um, but I'm also going to talk a little bit about some of the regulatory uh, landscape um, and the kind of context within today, which today's uh, FERC decision comes. Uh, so, and I also want to just mention that it also is a is a deep honor to work on this because at you know 26 years old, it's it's feels very urgent to me to do everything that we can to preserve a livable climate uh, for uh, my generation and for the generations to come. And so uh, it is incredibly meaningful me- for me to work on this campaign and I'm, I'm glad to be in coalition with uh, Francis and, and Pam and Aunt Anu and so many people. so. All right, so where are we right now uh, in the context of today's decision? So as the big graphic on the right hand side here says, uh, with, with zero state permits, FERC issues approval of Jordan Cove LNG. And that's really critical, right? Uh, these three major state permits from the state of Oregon um, are essential in order for the project to be built. And it has no future uh, without these projects, these permits. Um, The first one that was denied was uh, the Section 401 Clean Water Act permit that's administered by the Oregon Department of Environmental Quality. They issued a very in-depth denial of this permit in May of 2019, citing a wide range of impacts to drinking water and water resources in the state of Oregon. Uh, And then fast forward to January of 2020, after a long two-year process uh, of seeking out uh, the removal fill permit um, from the Oregon Department of State lands that would allow for things like dredging and, uh, and such like that. And then we saw that the company, Pembina, uh, withdrew their application for this permit when it became very clear that the wind was not blowing in their direction, right? That uh, the Department of State lands was insisting uh, upon a decision uh, to occur and uh, they had not actually provided the requested information and so fearing denial, Pembina went, Whoop, we're going to withdraw our permit application for this just days before we were expecting a decision on that permit. Uh, and then um, really sh- quickly, uh, before we were expecting um, a FERC decision on Jordan Cove LNG, um, the day before uh, we were expecting a decision from, from the federal agency, uh, the Oregon Department of Land Conservation and Development, Uh, issued a lengthy objection saying that there were an enormous amount of harmful impacts from the Pacific Connector Pipeline and Jordan Covell and G-Export Terminal uh, that would impact the coastal zone uh, along Coos County and Douglas County. uh, And that denial came through in February of 2020. One of the other pieces of news that came today is that Pembina has appealed that decision to the U.S. Secretary of Commerce. Um, And so that is an ongoing process there, but even if that permit denial were to be reversed, these Clean Water Act and Removal Fill Permits are essential for the project's future. Uh, And we have many opportunities to stay with the state of Oregon um, in making sure that those denials remain strong. And we also get a little bit of a moment to celebrate. We're really seeing an incredible marshaling of Oregon uh, leaders coming together and saying, this needs to stop. Uh, And Senator Ron Wyden issued a lengthy statement today in response to the FERC approval saying that he felt that the process was rigged in favor of the fossil fuel industry um, and that he could not support the project uh, because of the threat of eminent domain on landowners. And so I just want to recognize and take a moment to acknowledge that probably a lot of the people on this webinar uh, were involved in putting pressure on Senator Wyden to oppose this project and today he has finally Uh, taken a strong opposition stance against it. So that's an amazing cause for celebration. Uh, And also, meanwhile, Governor Kate Brown, who has been uh, under a tremendous amount of pressure to oppose the project, has also issued a statement saying that she will use every available tool to prevent the company from taking early action to condemn private property or clear land. And so we're seeing um, more and more that Oregon state agencies and elected officials are uh, are making very strong statements about uh, protecting south- Southwestern Oregonians um, from this particular issue. This, however, comes during very troubling times, right? Uh, Sandy Lyon, an impacted landowner in Days Creek, uh, was gave a really great quote for our press materials today that really, I think, just brought it all home for me that it, it's absolutely outrageous that FERC would issue a decision like this in the middle of a major global health emergency, a time when many people cannot leave their homes safely, to layer on this added anxiety around the uh, use of eminent domain on people's property when uh, we are all you know, socially distancing ourselves and uh, uh, doing what we can to mitigate this public health crisis is, is simply cruel. Um, And the response that we will have to it is to stand firm against this project and make sure that the state of Oregon does the same. Uh, And then the chairman of the Klamath Tribes, Don Gentry, who has been a really amazing advocate on behalf of the Klamath Tribes uh, against this project, um, also issued a a statement saying, expressing their disappointment with the approval today. um, And just reaffirmed how vital the cultural and natural resources are that would be impacted by uh, this project. So we carry on. There is, there's, uh, a, a, It's a, quite a disappointing turn of events today, but we can do uh, what we've been doing very well for the past uh, many, many years uh, and ensure that this project has no future. So I'm going to talk a little bit about some of the uh, health impacts of the project in a couple of different areas and categories and. I'll include a link in the very last slide of my presentation that uh, will point you in the direction of our longer fracked gas health report, which we did with Washington Physicians for Social Responsibility to take a look at the many different ways in which gas projects like this uh, impact the health and safety of communities near nearby uh, gas infrastructure. So as Francis had said, there's a lot of waterway crossings proposed by this facility, which means a really big risk to drinking water for about 160,000 Oregonians in in southern Oregon. So this is, you know, we're not talking about you know just a few people whose drinking water could be contaminated in the event of a uh, a frac out where the pipeline um, is ruptured in some kind of a way and gas gets into the local environment or some sort of explosion, there's some really serious consequences that would be uh, posed to drinking water from that. And then as Francis also said, you know, or old growth forest and endangered species habitat would be cleared, we, our health is connected to the health of the natural environment. Um, and we need our natural spaces for things like carbon sequestration, for example, and uh, it also keeps our air clean eminent domain on landowners, you know, there's an, I think, Pam really well articulated that there's been a really profound mental health impact of simply the threat of this project and how long it's been looming, right? And so in addition to how terrible it would be to uproot people from their land, simply this, the specter of this project looming over communities for so long is, uh, has a really significant and serious toll. And then the indirect health impacts of climate change that would come from this massive uh, contributor to uh, the global climate crisis is, is not to be uh, discounted. Right. So the uh, we heard, you know, 8 million vehicles on the road uh, is a comparison of the greenhouse gas impact of this project. Another comparison that has been made is that it would be equivalent to about 15 coal fired power plants. Um, at a time when Oregon is recognizing that we need to move away from such uh, electricity sources. Um, we can't afford to build a project that would have that great of an impact. And then there's, of course, the direct safety impacts of wildfires, uh, earthquakes and tsunamis on the terminal in uh, Coos Bay, uh, and the risk of explosions because pipelines do rupture and they do explode, and they happen, it happens often enough that it really presents an acute threat. And then there's some other more subtle, not as immediate to jump to mind impacts like the noise pollution that would come from the construction of this massive project, but also the ongoing operation of the LNG terminal and from compressor stations like one that would be built outside of Klamath Falls. I'm going to talk a little bit more about compressor station uh, impacts in, in this slide about air quality. Um, So I'm just looking at a a case study in Klamath County, which is where the origin of the pipeline would be. Uh, This region already has an F grade on air quality from the American Lung Association. Uh, It happens to be a region where a lot of poor air quality gets kind of socked in and trapped in the Klamath Basin before air patterns move it on. And so building this construction uh, with all of the heavy machinery that that requires and then the compressor station that would be running on an ongoing basis would contribute to already poor uh, air quality in this region. And so this chart here helps to break down exactly what it is um, that all of these different um, pieces of gas infrastructure would be spewing into the air, right? And so this first row here, compressor stations and pipelines um, would be emitting all of these different um, you know, fine particulate matter, volatile organic compounds, nitrogen oxide, carbon monoxide, uh, sulfur dioxide, and lead. Right. And then there's all of these things um, are also caused by LNG facilities like the one proposed in Coos Bay. Um, And then these bottom two rows are are not as relevant here. Uh, They refer to other types of projects, but there's still just an enormous amount of impact that these facilities would have on an ongoing basis. I talked a little bit about the drinking water impacts. I want to add just like a little bit of extra data into this. in the construction process itself, they do this thing called pipeline seal testing where they have to run a bunch of water through a pipeline to make sure that it's not leaking, which means that you get you know, between 16 to 60 million gallons of fresh water that would be running through pipeline as it's being laid into place that would then be discharged with all of this crud from the lining of the pipeline. In, in the water that then is just discharged off into the local environment. So you, even before you talk about the possibility of a, uh, a rupture, an explosion, a leak, a major major leak, um, just the construction process itself flushes an enormous amount of water through the pipelines just to test their seal testing. Um, and so the routine amount of work that actually needs to go into the building of this pipeline, if all goes according to plan, would still contaminate an enormous amount of fresh water. Um, and then naturally, surface and groundwater are threatened by all of the things that could go wrong, right? Um, explosions, but also construction blast- blasting and the erosion and water diversions that would need to happen for the massive construction of this major pipeline. And one of the things that's particularly galling is that uh, the, in the environmental impact statement, the, the project proponents have said that they would truck in or pipe in water to a contaminated water system. But that is just un- an unbelievable promise to make uh, that would just be costly, difficult, and in some cases impossible to literally truck in water into remote communities who have their uh, watersheds contaminated. Um, that is an unbelievable promise and uh, is is not something that I think anybody really trusts so we've I've already talked about it a little bit, right? So the reason why a massive pipeline like the one proposed in Southern Oregon is such a big concern and in fact, a much bigger concern than uh, gas infrastructure that might, you know, feed into your home, for example, is that it is much larger and much higher pressure than a residential gas line, um, which are usually only a few inches in diameter and much smaller PSI, right? So the Pacific connector would be 36 inches in diameter and 1800 PSI. And, uh, we have some data around, uh, from the U.S. Departments of Transportation's Pipeline and Hazardous Materials Safety Administration, um, that has recorded an enormous amount of serious incidents—858 in uh, the 1996 to 2016 20-year span—with 347 fatalities and 13 over 1,300 injuries. So pipelines do rupture, and as this map in the lower right shows, um, these this is the wildfire potential along the proposed pipeline route, right, and with climate change, we're already seeing much more extreme wildfires in Southern Oregon, and it would likely only get much worse if, uh, if there were more pipeline explosions and ruptures in the region. I want to talk a little bit about the economic impacts, and I would say that in this particular moment, um, when we're seeing enormous uh, layoffs from the uh, restaurant sector, and the service sector from the, the public health crisis that we're experiencing right now, um, we know that there are health impacts when, it, when you lose your job, right? In, in the United States, so many people rely on their employment for health care coverage. And so in addition to having the disposable income that you need in order to take good care of your health and pay your copays and things like that, when people lose their jobs, it also puts their health at great jeopardy because of the way that healthcare uh, in the United States functions. Um, and so it's a big concern to look at the different industries um, that uh, are in southern Oregon that would be disrupted by LNG tankers, as, as Francis was, was telling us. This, these are jobs in crabbing, fishing, shellfish industries on the coast. Uh, LNG tankers would massively jam up the, the vessel traffic. Uh, in Coos Bay and severely limit the amount of uh, fishing boats that could come in and out um, in order to do their job. And This is a multi-million dollar industry. It's a really, we're not talking about just a handful of of jobs here, we're talking about a major uh, trade-off here. The proponents often talk about, oh we're gonna bring new jobs to Coos Bay, but the, te- the te- number of temporary jobs might be, you know, considerable. The number of permanent jobs that would be created by this project just pale in comparison to the number that would likely be lost in the thriving industries that already exist in the, in the region. Um, and it's also worth pointing out that there's a number of other economic impacts like the cost of firefighting in the, in the event of one of these major explosions. Um, increased pressure on local housing markets in an area where affordable housing is already a big need. Um, reduced air quality means reduced pro- productivity and lost work days and sick days. Um, and it's worth pointing out that uh, the clean energy industry is just absolutely you know, taking off and it makes far more sense to invest in those kinds of jobs for the region um, that are not going to disrupt existing industries. And, of course, gas is not a bridge fuel. This is uh, something that is often spoken of in climate circles, right, as we transition off of uh, coal and oil. Let's use gas because, oh, it's it's natural and it burns cleaner. Well, that's unfortunately one of the biggest myths that we have ever been sold. um, Because uh, so-called natural gas is almost entirely made up of methane, which is uh, the second most abundant greenhouse gas in the atmosphere after carbon dioxide um, and which counts for a third of all human caused global greenhouse gas warming. A single molecule of methane traps 86 times more heat than a single molecule of CO2 over a 20 year time period and scientists have really been telling us that it's this short term near term future uh, that matters the most for reaching our climate goals. So it, it really matters a lot that we uh, don't fall victim to this myth and in fact make sure that we talk about methane gas for what it really is, which is 67% of the methane used in the United States comes from hydraulic fracturing or fracking, which is why it is accurate to call it fracked gas since most of the gas in, used in different parts of the country or what would be piped through this pipeline to be exported to foreign markets Um, Would mostly be coming from US fracking. So let's call it what it is. It's not natural gas. It's fracked gas. And um, even if only 2.3% of methane uh, is released in the course of um, transporting it from extraction site to uh, final consumption, um, then it is uh, likely on on par with the climate impacts of coal. So um, it's not a bridge fuel. It's in fact, a bridge to disaster. And then just kind of wrapping up here, uh, I wanted to touch upon the fact that we, there really is a major reason why uh, climate change is, is a public health emergency of its own right. Um, health professionals worldwide have really called that out. This is a really helpful chart um, that looks at the various ways in which uh, climate is making uh, acute health crises worse in different parts of the world. Um, In Oregon, we see this in a number of different ways. We see it from rising summer temperatures to wetter winters, uh, impacts to drinking water from things like harmful algal blooms, um, and uh, much more extreme wildfire seasons with smokier weather that we are not prepared for. So there's a lot of different reasons why we need to be concerned about mitigating the impacts of climate change and building resiliency to climate change and not making it worse by building a project that would emit 15 times... Uh, the Boardman coal plants, uh, carbon emissions.
1: Damon, thank you so much for that. Uh, now I'd like to also introduce Anu Sakar. Anu is the Coastal Law Project Fellow with the Craig Law Center. Elise, I'm gonna turn it over to you.
2: Thanks so much, Jane, and thanks to everybody who sent questions. Um, we got another question that uh, mentioned that uh, Francis said the pipeline runs through a third of public and two thirds private lands, but has a significant impact on indigenous watersheds. The question asked how much of the proposed pipeline runs through indigenous lands, and is it treated legally differently?
0: 100% of the pipeline runs through ancestral lands. As far as ownership of tribal lands, I don't think the pipeline runs through lands they currently own but it certainly runs 100 runs through historic tribal lands.
2: Awesome. Um, We had a couple other questions. The whole process of quick take, I didn't realize that was really a thing. Is there any recourse against it or how is that legal?
5: I I do know, um, and this is vague, I'd have to do a little more research about it, that it is related to certain loopholes in the Natural Gas Act. The same loophole that allows a corporation a foreign corporation in this case, to eminent domain the lands of private citizens in Oregon. Um, the Natural Gas Act, quick take, I mean, the basic definition of it is essentially the the government can begin activities on someone's land before eminent domain or that process has been adjudicated. Um, and it cr- accrues primarily to the benefit of energy companies.
3: Um, I'll, I'll jump in and tell you that um, I'm not a... An attorney, nor do I represent one on TV. But um, <laughs> I've I've learned a little bit about quick take and um, don't take it to the bank because it's simply my understanding and the way it's been explained to us is that um, if the pipeline company um, does get their certificate of convenience and is authorized mm-hmm. to use the eminent domain and the pipeline company and the landowner do not come to an agreement they can file for quick take. And what that does is they go to the court and they say, this is costing me so much money fiddling around with these landowners that I need to get going. I can't wait to negotiate. And so they are allowed to go ahead and start with their process while concurrently the landowner is working with the pipeline Um, company trying to negotiate um, the condemnation through the court system. So they're kind of, the the quick take is off to the side and um, the landowner and the pipeline company are trying to come to terms. And what has happened, and I think back East, what happened in one of these situations is that the pipeline company went through and cut down like 200 year old maple trees. And in the meantime. The landowner is going through the court, trying to come to terms as to how much they're going to be compensated. They don't get any compensation, right. any compensation until the terms are agreed upon. Mm-hmm. So the landowner is kind of hamstrung. They don't have any compensation, but they're losing their land, the, and the pipeline company gets to go through.
4: Yeah, and it's exactly. just such a racket that this sort of thing could even happen. It, it at is all. unbelievable. Yeah. The yeah. Natural
5: Gas Act is an interesting, interesting animal.
4: It's such a it, to me it's just evidence that the oil and gas industry has been able to use v- a huge amount of corporate cash mm-hmm. to influence decision makers and lawmakers so that they could take this thing, which eminent domain was originally meant for things like roads, right, right. government buildings, public utilities, the kinds of things that were deemed as like this is necessary for the like public infrastructure exactly. of our own country right. to then co-opt and twist that in order to Uh, give a private corporation not even based in the United States profits to export a gas product um, that is also, you know, degrading the health of fracking communities out to a foreign market for sale. You know, it's just, it's absolutely ludicrous that that could then say that that's in the public benefit of the landowners in Southern Oregon. And, you know, this morning, FERC chairman Chatterjee said that it will bring untold economic and environmental benefits to the world, and that that's why it it counted as a public benefit, um, which is just, you know, not true, and absolutely, uh, you know, just outrageous.
2: Pertinent to today, what are the likely legal actions to follow from FERC, uh, from the FERC decision today, and from the coastal zone management um, appeal?
5: Sierra Club is seeking a rehearing of FERC's decision itself to authorize both the Section 7 uh, application and the Section 3 uh, application. One of them is a certificate of convenience for the pipeline, and the other one is just the citing authorization for the terminal itself. Um, with In terms of the CZMA, um, so the CZMA certification is um, something that gas pipeline companies are recor- required. Um, to present to the FERC and agencies like the Army Corps of Engineers certifying that they comply with the state, a state, and in this case, the state of Oregon's enforceable policies in the coastal zone. Um, And so for us, that's between the coastal range to, I mean, the continental shelf, but it is 52 miles of the pipeline and Coos Estuary is in Oregon's coastal zone. Um, The DLCD, as Damon mentioned, um, issued an objection to that that objection was appealed by Jordan Cove, and there was initially, I mean, it can go one of two ways. Either the Secretary of Commerce is is the person who hears um, an appeal of a coastal zone objection. Um, The Secretary of Commerce or an applicant can challenge an objection letter by a state. In this case, Jordan Cove challenges the objection letter, um, and now the Secretary will hear it the state of Oregon is going to have to, at some point, defend it. Defend it. Yeah.
4: Yeah. And then the, the two fe- the two other permits that are necessary for the project, um, Jordan Cove LNG has not yet reapplied for either the Clean Water Act permit right. or the remo- removal fill permit. State Clean Water Act and state removal fill permit. But those are federal authorizations mm-hmm. that are granted to the state. And so... Mm-hmm that can't be um, appealed in the same way that the coastal zone authorization can be appealed. Right.
2: I, I think we should wrap up soon. So I'm gonna take the prerogative of, of moderator to ask the last question. And that is, it's, it's a personal passion, but it just seems crazy to me that we're gonna log old growth as part of this process. And I was wondering, I know that the broads put, put in a, a objection to some of the um, forest service nonsense, is there anything else that we can do to help protect the forests and, and the waterways that are going to be impacted? You know, Francis. I feel like this is your bread and butter.
0: Well, the, the federal lands cannot, unlike private lands, where once they get that eminent domain right, they can start tree cutting on private lands. On federal lands, it's a little different. They can't start the tree cutting until after they have the 401 water quality permit uh and then once they have that in hand the BLM issues a right of way permit for the forest service and the uh and the BLM itself so it'll be a long time before the trees start to come down on federal lands i mean hopefully it'll be a long time what do i know i've never been through this before if that happens quickly or not uh and believe me we'll all know it and when it, it if it comes and we weren't able to stop it legally with the request for rehearing, which is being put in by Sierra Club and Welk, then it's time to get out there and climb those trees. What else is there to do, right?
2: All right. Um, I feel like that's a great spot to leave off. Um, thank you all so much for coming. I really appreciate it. And once again, a big thank you to our speakers. Um, and stay safe out there. Keep yourself healthy for the fight.
0: You have been listening to a presentation given by the Great Old Broads for Wilderness on the Jordan Cove Project. This was a webcast. It was going to be in person in Portland, but now it's recorded for our enjoyment here on Conservation Today. We'll be back in a couple weeks with some more great interviews. I'm your host, Francis Etherington.